Welcome back to the Hemingway List, War and Peace, Book 6, Chapter 10. Pierre, <clears throat> excuse me, through his own words, is still struggling with his complete self-absorption. Anytime he stumbles socially, he seems to go through a series of self-flagellation in his diary. Do you believe he is too hard on himself while giving everyone else the benefit of the doubt? On the other hand, he is not above judgment. His newest recruit, Boris Drubetskoy, seems to be joining the Masons for the sole purpose of networking. Do you think Pierre has a fundamental misunderstanding regarding the purposes of the Masons? Possibly, but there by Isof sorry, possibly put there by Iosef Alexevich. Or is he correct in his contempt towards the networkers? Do you think Pierre's final dream had an element of prophecy to it? Is Yosef Alexevich dead? Um, it's weird to see Pierre enter something like the Freemasons, which seems very structured and like they wouldn't really be looking for some for any like reform there. And that's the hill he chooses to die on, you know? Like, that's where he chooses to go against the grain and try to make a change. Where every other aspect of his life, he's just, you know, at the mercy of other people's whims. He just goes with the flow. And now he's going against the flow. Icar 100 says, This chapter felt really surreal, and not just because of the dreams... I think Pierre's writing had gotten more introspective as time moves on. It reflects his state of mind really well. Nice one, Tolstoy. I don't know, maybe I'm being a bit too idealistic, but he is being way too hard on himself. I also think he is right in his contempt of joining the Masons just for networking. It's not a bloody gentleman's club. Uh, you know, I felt like a, a lot of religions and I know I'm not meant to use that word from Freemasons that's a brotherhood but a lot of you know religions or what's the better word well you know there's a word I'm trying to think of anyway that kind of organization I feel like you see people join them for networking purposes all the time right like I'm pretty sure I've only been to a few Christian churches because I'm not, not religious, but I have been to, you know, uh, I've even worked at some doing my book stuff for, for like a kid's church group. Um, and I've you know, been to mates, Christian ceremonies of different types. Anyway, whenever I am find myself in the middle of a Christian congregation, uh, especially like a fairly young one, youthful one, not a youth one, but, you know, like a, a young church, I do just look around and think, how much of this is networking? You know, you know what I mean? How much of this is networking? I played in a band with some mates once who all of them were Christians except for me. And they did all these gigs that were linked into Christian society, like different high schools. They went and played at them, Christian ones or churches, or youth groups, or Christian festivals, getting all these great gigs, and they were just a rock band, like they weren't like a Christian rock band, it was just a rock band, but 
I don't know. Like it was undeniably the undeniable that it was they were getting all these gigs at different schools and they were all paid gigs too. They were getting them all through the networking of their church. And I just think I think every religion must have a fair chunk of people who are like, you know, don't tell anyone this. I don't really believe this stuff. But there are a lot of people here and um they love throwing me work. <laughs> how um how cynical is that of me to say? Probably really cynical. Um but hey, I'm completely on the outside of religion, so I can say wildly speculative things like that. <laughs> and hey, feel free to put me back in my place. Uh Four Lost Souls in a Bowl says this. This was one of my favourite chapters this far. It was like Dostoevsky combined with Jeremiah. I assume brother A is Alex Beach. So why the change in address starting December 7th? Um, yeah, it's interesting that you say that. Like it's your favourite chapter so far and compare it to Dostoevsky. Because I really didn't like Dostoevsky. Um, and I really didn't like this chapter. <laughs> I I explained why at the end of yesterday's podcast, but... I guess I'll do it again in case people didn't listen to the end. But the dreams, if, if I just don't find it interesting, dream sequences, or especially someone describing their dream, you have a very short window until I'm like, okay, now you're milking it. Like I'll listen to a dream story for a, for a, you know for a little bit, but I'm not listening to it for you know a full minute. If you spend a full minute describing a dream. You're just describing imaginary stuff. Like, it's not real. You know? And um, this chapter had, I think, four or five dreams described. Um, and I don't know. I know there's probably symbolism in there. And maybe it's, you know, by describing the dreams where I would actually see deep into Pierre's psyche. But, um, I don't know. I just didn't find it entertaining, to be honest. But that's probably more of a pet peeve for me. You know, I'm well aware not everyone shares my point of view on that one. Now, oh, I just realized I've closed the book. I have to reopen that because we're going to read... What are we reading? Chapter 11. I have to find out I'm on the right one. Yes, I am on the right one. Okay, there we go. There's chapter 11. Excellent. All right, here we go. Oh, it looks like we're checking in with the Rostovs. Chapter 11 goes like this. The Rostovs' monetary affairs had not improved during the two years they had spent in the country. Though Nicholas Rostov had kept firmly to his resolution and was still serving modestly in an obscure regiment, sending comparatively little the way of life at Otrodnoe, Bitenka's management of affairs in particular was such that the debts inevitably increased every year. The only resource obviously presenting itself to the old count was to apply for an official post, so he had to come to Petersburg to look for one and also, as he said, to let the lassies enjoy themselves for the last time. Soon after their arrival in Petersburg, Berg proposed to Vera and was accepted. Though in Moscow the Rostovs belonged to the, very, to the best society without themselves giving it a thought, Yet in Petersburg, their circle of acquaintances was a mixed and indefinite one, 
In Petersburg, they were provincials, and the very people they had entertained in Moscow without inquiring to, to what set they belonged here looked down on them. The Rostovs lived in the same hospitable way in Petersburg as in Moscow, and the most diverse people met at their suppers. Country neighbours from Otranoi, impoverished old squires and their daughters, Perinskaya, a maid of honour, Pierre Bezikov, and the son of their district postmaster, who had obtained a post in Petersburg. Among the men who very soon became frequent visitors at the Rostovs' house in Petersburg were Boris, Pierre, whom the Count had met in the street and dragged home with him, and Berg, who spent whole days at the Rostovs and paid the altar's daughter, Count Countess Vera, the attentions a young man pays when he intends to propose. Not in vain had Berg shown everybody his right hand wounded at Austerlitz, and help a perfectly unnecessarily sword held and a perfectly unnecessary sword in his left. He narrated that episode so persistently and with so important an air that everybody <clears throat> believed in the merit and usefulness of his deed, and he obtained two decorations for Austerlitz. In the Finnish war, he also managed to distinguish himself. He had picked up the scrap of a grenade that had killed an aide-de-camp standing near the commander-in-chief and had taken it to his commander. Just as he had done after Austerlitz, he related this occurrence at such length and so insistently that everyone again believed it had been necessary to do this, and he received two decorations for the Finnish war also. In 1809, he was a captain in the guards, wore medals, and held some special lucrative posts in Petersburg. Though some sceptics smiled when told of Berg's merits, it could not be denied that he was painstaking and brave as an officer, on excellent terms with his superiors and a moral young man with a brilliant career before him and an assured position in society. Four years before meeting a German comrade in the stalls of a Moscow theatre... Oh, sorry, I read that wrong. Four years before... Meeting a comrade, oh, I read it wrong again. Four years before meeting a com, <laughs> four years before meeting a German comrade in the stalls of a Moscow theatre, Berg had pointed out Vera Rostova to him and said, in German, "Das soll mein Web worden." That girl shall be my wife, and from that moment had made up his mind to marry her. Now, in Petersburg, having considered the Rostovs' position and his own, he decided that the time had come to propose. Berg's proposal was at first received with a perplexity that was not flattering to him. At first it seemed strange that the son of an obscure Livonian gentleman should propose marriage to a Countess Rostova, but Berg's chief characteristic was such a naive and good-natured egotism that the Rostovs involuntarily came to think it would be a good thing. Since he himself was so firmly convinced that it was good, indeed, excellent. Moreover, the Rostovs' affairs were seriously embarrassed, as the suitor could not but know. And above all, Vera was twenty-four, had been taken out everywhere, and though she was certainly good-looking and sensible, no one up to now had proposed to her. So they gave their consent. <clears throat> you see, said Berg to his comrade, whom he called friend, only because he knew that everyone has friends. You see, I have considered it all, 
and should not marry if I had not thought it all out or if it were in any way unsuitable. But on the contrary, my papa and mamma are now provided for. I have arranged that rent for them in the Baltic provinces and I can live in Petersburg on my pay and with her fortune and my good management we can get along nicely. I am not marrying for money, I consider that dishonourable, but a wife should bring her share and a husband his. I have my position in the service and she has connections and some means. In our times that is worth something, isn't it? But above all, she is a handsome, estimable, esteemable girl and she loves me. Berg blushed and smiled. And I love her because her character is sensible and very good. Now the other sister, though they are the same family, is quite different, an unpleasant character and has not the same intelligence. She is so, you know, unpleasant. But my fiancé, well, you will be coming. He was going to say to dine, but changed his mind and said to take tea with us. And quickly doubling up his tongue, he blew a small round ring of tobacco smoke, perfectly embodying his dream of happiness. After the first feeling of perplexity aroused in the parents by Berg's proposal, the holiday tone of joyousness usual at such times took possession of the family. But the rejoicing was external and insincere. In the family's feeling towards this wedding, a certain awkwardness and constraint was evident, as if they were ashamed of not having loved Vera sufficiently and of being so ready to get her off their hands. The old Count felt this most. He would probably have been unable to state the cause of his embarrassment, but it resulted from the state of his affairs. He did not know at all how much he had, with his debts, what his debts amounted to, or what dowry he could give Vera. When his daughters were born, he had assigned to each of them for her dowry an estate with 300 serfs, but one of these estates had already been sold and the other was mortgaged, and the interest so much in arrears that it would have to be sold so that it was impossible to give it to Vera, nor had he any money. Berg had already been engaged a month, and only a week remained before the wedding, but the Count had not yet decided in his own mind the question of the dowry, nor spoken to his wife about it. At one time the Count thought of giving her the Ryazan estate, or of selling a forest, at another time of borrowing money on a note of hand, a few days before the wedding, Berg entered the Count's study early one morning and, with a pleasant smile, respectfully asked his future father-in-law to let him know what Vera's dowry would be. The Count was so disconcerted by his long-foreseen inquiry that, without consideration, he gave the first reply that came into his head. I like your being businesslike about it. I like it. You shall be satisfied. And, patting Berg on the shoulder, he got up, wishing to end the conversation, but Berg, smiling pleasantly, explained that if he did not know for certain how much Vera would have, have, and did not receive at least part of the dowry in advance, he would have to break matters off. Because, consider, Count, if I allowed myself to marry now without having definite means to maintain my wife, I should be acting badly. The conversation ended by the Count, who wished to be generous, and to avoid further inopportunity, saying that he would give a note of hand for 80,000 roubles. Berg smiled meekly, kissed the count on the shoulder, and said that he was very grateful, but that it was impossible for him to arrange his new life without receiving 30,000 in ready money. Or at least 20,000 count, he added, and then a note of hand for only 60,000. Yes, yes, all right, said the count hurriedly. Only, excuse me, my dear fellow, I'll give you 20,000 and a note of hand for 80,000 as well. 
Yes, yes, kiss me. Alright, there we go. Another chapter down. Did Count Rostov just bargain himself up? I think he's just bargained himself up. <laughs> he reversed bargained. Alright, interesting move. Have your say about that one. Berg and Vera. The, uh, the couple I'm sure everyone was rooting for. Now a, uh, a marriage waiting to happen. Very cool. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. I'll see you tomorrow.